Matthew Henry comments on this chapter. He says, The story of Samson introduces him as a child of promise, but the story of Samuel introduces him as a child of prayer. Samson's birth was foretold by an angel to his mother. Samuel was asked of God by his mother. Both together intimate what wonders are produced by the word and prayer. Here now the reading of God's inspired word given for our prophet, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But to Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to Hannah, Why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, 
and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vows and his vow. But Hannah went not up for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou have weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh and the child was young and they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli and she said oh my Lord as thy soul liveth my Lord I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord for this child I prayed and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And thus far the reading of God's inspired, inerrant word, profitable for us, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now just a brief introduction to the book of Samuel. Uh, we do not know precisely who wrote this, possibly portions of it from Samuel portions from the other prophets. We do know it is the word of God. It is our uh, rule of faith and obedience or part of it, the canonical scriptures. In chapters 1 through 8, we have Samuel's rise and government. Chapters 9 through 15, we have Saul rising to power and then mismanaging his kingdom. And in chapters 16 through 31, we have Saul's power going down and David's power rising up. So that's the basic outline of the whole book. Now to this first chapter, verses one through eight, we have Hannah's affliction and her beloved status. It says that they were from Ramathaim Zophim of Mount Ephraim. It is also called Rama, as we saw in verse 19. And of interest is that in the Septuagint translation, this is called Aramathaim or Arimathea, as it's said in the New Testament. And some believe, including the scholar Jerome, believe that this is the same place it's talking about. Joseph of Arimathea is from the same place as Elkanah. Now, we have read about Mount Ephraim in the book of Judges. If you recall, Micah was from Mount Ephraim, Judges 17, 1 and following, and the Levite also concerning Mount Ephraim. Samuel would later live here in this same place, Ramah, and he would have a circuit of judgments he would do from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah back to Ramah. 
He had a high place there where he anointed Saul as king. Israel would come to Samuel there to demand a king in chapter 8, verses 4 and following. And David would flee to Ramah from the persecutions of Saul in this same book, chapter 19, verse 18. So this place, Ramah, plays large in the book of 1 Samuel. Now it says that Elkanah was the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf. You may read a fuller genealogy of this man in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 33 through 38. We find there that Elkanah was descended from the Kohathites, one of the sons of Levi. So he had a Levitical position. He was not necessarily from the Ephraimites, he was a Levite. And his son Samuel was likewise, therefore, a Levite. We also see that Heman the seer and musician mentioned in the Psalter and in the Chronicles, he is the, the great-grandson of Elkanah. He's Samuel's grandson. We see when Samuel works then in the tabernacle, it is in his capacity as a Levite, not as someone just appointed from one of the other tribes, which would have been unlawful. Rather, he goes in under the law of God as a Levite. But notice this man Elkanah, as great as he was, he had two wives, Hannah and Penina. He was a sincere and godly man, yet he was a vessel of clay, saved by God's grace and not by his works. John Gill comments on these two wives, which though connived at in those times was contrary to the original law of marriage, and for which, though a good man, he was chastised, and had a great deal of vexation and trouble, the two wives not agreeing with each other. Now this is very common in the Bible. Whenever there are multiple wives, what do you find? Harmony, peace, love? No, you always find bickering, you always find hatred, you always find degradation. And that's what we see here. There is hatred against Hannah by the one that's called her adversary. This man, Elkanah, verse 3 tells us, went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord. Now this sounds like maybe once a year, but it could also be understood as the three times in the year that God said all the males should appear before him. So Elkanah goes to the public ordinances of worship, and not only did he serve the Lord, who else served? His whole household, it says. He brought them together with him, out of his city, together with his family. And we see this also in verse 21, not just there in verse 3. Husbands and fathers then have a duty to attend on the public means of grace with their households. This is true of public worship. This is also true in private worship. This is a rebuke to the antinomian parenting. Well, I'll let my children find their own way. I'll let them make up their own mind. Is that what God says? As for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord, not I will serve the Lord and I'll let them figure out what they're going to do. No, that's idolatry. And so this is commendable in Elkanah. Fathers, raise your children in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our duty and we're to follow this good example. Children, receive willingly the government of your parents. Don't fight against it. If they're raising you in the Lord, be thankful for that. 
and follow even as his household did, follow them in those good things. Now we see also that he went to Shiloh. This is where the tabernacle was established in Joshua 18, verse 1. God put his name and Elkanah went. Now if you recall, there are points in the law of Moses where he says, go wherever I put my name. And why is that? Well, worship is a natural thing. We must worship God because he's our creator. But the specific manner, as in times, places, and specific actions, those are subject to God's will. Deuteronomy 12:5 says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. Elkanah listens to that scripture and says, God's worship has been established here, I will go here. Do you know it was changed? It would later be somewhere else, and before it was in Shiloh, it was somewhere else. It was probably in Gilgal for a time. So God had different places, different appointments at different times. And Elkanah listened to that. Now, Hannah receives what is called a worthy portion, for he loved this woman, Elkanah did. He had a preference and affection for her shown by his actions. Now we're going to see in 1 Samuel 9 that Samuel does the same thing for Saul. He gives him a worthy portion. He gives him the lion's share. He gives him the best part to show honor, to show love, to show respect for Saul. So here for his wife, Hannah. But notice the Lord shut, shut up her womb. And this is possibly the occasion for Elkanah's foolishness in taking a second wife. He takes one, he loves her, she can't have kids. What does he do? He gets a second. It's very likely that that's what happened. That was a sin that was acceptable in their day. And this parallels uh, approximately the relationship between Jacob and Rachel. You remember he loved Rachel, but could she have children? No. God shut up her womb. So here, this man Elkanah loves Hannah, but she can't have children. The Lord shut up her womb. And her adversary, verse 6 tells us, provoked her sore to make her fret. That is, to waste away, to be frazzled. She couldn't concentrate. She couldn't be pleased with her life. She was discontent. She was provoked to this by her adversary, Penina. Now, this is a judgment of God, confusion, discord, and provocation. Why? Well, because they're practicing the ways of the Gentiles. They're practicing the order of Cain, they're not practicing the order of God who said, the two shall become one. They're practicing the three shall become one. Who said that? Did God say that? No. It was the heathens cut off from the life of God and the family of Cain who did this. Not the people of God. Noah had one wife. His sons had one wife each. They were ordinary people following the order of nature. This is an anomaly. And so God judges it. It's against his law, his original law of marriage. And her distressor vexed her, troubled her, oppressed her. And it can be no other way if there is not one man and one woman. God will judge. God will bring disorder and chaos. And therefore she wept and did not eat because of this annual cycle of torture by Penina. Her grief and sorrow were warranted by the mistreatment at her hand. But notice she handles it properly, doesn't she? We'll see this. Now her husband Elkanah says, Am not I better 
to thee than ten sons. Shouldn't you value this love that I have for you, even though you have no sons? Verses 9 through 18 then, Hannah issues a vow and prayer to God in her distress, and Eli reacts to her. Notice verse 10. She was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Is this not what we should do? If we are in distress, if we are in trouble, if we are vexed by others, what is our native response? Well, let me strike back. Let me do some evil thing or say some wicked word so that I can defend myself. What does she do? She goes to God. She takes her distress to the Lord. She prays unto him and weeps before him, making her request known unto God, and she vows a vow. And notice what a vow is. O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt, then I will. That's what a vow is. If thou wilt, God, then I will. And vows can be done for all sorts of things. You can't say, well, if you bless me, I'll go murder this person. That's not lawful. You can't make a vow to do some sinful thing contrary to God's commandments. But it is not contrary to God's commandments to take a little Levite and to present him at the temple to work there full time. That is not unlawful in the least. So she vows this vow. Our confession in chapter 22, paragraph 6 says, a vow is to be made to God alone. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made out of faith and conscience of duty and way of thankfulness for mercy received or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. That's what she's saying. This is a lawful thing. I'm asking God for a child. I don't have any. Is that a lawful thing to ask? Yes. So it's contingent, though. If it be thy will, and you do this for me, then I will do that. That's what she's saying. So she's presenting it in that, if it be God's will. And this is an act of worship, not merely for the Old Testament, but rather, likewise, for our age as well. Now, while she's praying and vowing to God, she does so in her heart, but her lips move, we're told, but her voice was not heard. So she's in, in a strait, she's in a passion, and her lips are moving, but she's not saying anything. And so what does Eli think? That she had been drunken. Now we know something about Eli from this passage and from others. We're going to find out as we read more about Eli that he was an indulgent man that he disregarded the law of God in preference for his customs and usages, and he would take the fat that should have been burnt to God, and the people would remind the priests of this, and they'd say, shut up, give me what I want. But they knew that those things, the people knew these things of the fat are supposed to be given to God, and you're taking them for yourselves. Guess what? Eli was a fat man because of this because of his self-indulgence and violation of God's law. So when he sees the woman praying there, what is his first thought? She must be indulgent like me. She must be a drunkard. She must be drinking. Put away your wine. He thinks as he lives. This time also was a time of lawlessness, as we'll see with Hophni and Phinehas, a time where lawlessness abounded. Perhaps there were many drunken women. Perhaps those women were some of those that Hophni and Phinehas lay with at the door of the tabernacle. Drunken women there in the worship of God. Who knows? But whatever the case is, he is wrong to think this. 
And Hannah answers and says, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. Verse 15. Here she gives honor. Though Eli was wrong, though he falsely accused her, yet she did her duty to him under the fifth commandment. That's very important to recognize. Was Eli perfect as a priest of God? No. Did he still have an office in the church? Yes, he did. And she honors him and refers to him in respectful titles. Duties are not generally abrogated by the sins of superiors. If you owe a duty to your parents, to a husband, to your mother or your father, to the magistrate or to a minister, those in the church or anyone, your boss at work, if you owe them a duty of honor and they are wicked and do things or say things they shouldn't, what happens to their authority? Is it automatically erased and you say, well, I owe them nothing? No, you see this in her. She's willing to show honor to whom honor is due, even though he's just accused her of being drunk in the house of God while she's praying and making a vow in a sorrowful spirit. So she responds with a soft answer. And she says, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but notice, have poured out my soul before the Lord. This shows the ardency as if the whole bottle was poured out, not into her mouth, but her soul is like the bottle of wine poured out as a drink offering to God. This is beautiful. This is a play on words. You say, I've been drinking from the bottle. No, I've been pouring the bottle out to God himself, the bottle being her body and soul. And she's offering, holding nothing back with boldness in her speech in prayer, knowing that God hears the prayers of his people and that when we offer up our desires unto God, he will hear us. Out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken. Verse 16. Do you have complaints? Do you have griefs? Are you joyful? Are you perplexed? Do you lack wisdom? Are you thankful for some benefit? You know what God says to all those? Pray. There is a prayer appropriate and suited to every one of those circumstances. And that's what she's doing. Eli then, after being reproved very gently and indirectly, nevertheless, he says to her, go in peace. He doesn't defend his former action and accusation. He doesn't try to justify himself. He realizes he was wrong, and so he wishes a blessing upon her rather than his former chastisement of her. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. This is a blessing and a prayer for good. So she goes her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Do you see this? God says that we take our requests, our concerns, the things that burden us, and what are we to do? We're to give them to him. And then what happens, are we told in Philippians? And then the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why do we needlessly suffer? Why do we bear these burdens ourselves? Well, it's pride. We must humble ourselves, offer them up to God, and receive his peace. Verses 19 through 28, Samuel's birth, his nursing, and his presentation to the Lord in fulfillment of his mother's vow. Notice here, God remembered her. The Lord remembered her, verse 20. 
He remembered her prayers. He remembered her vow. He remembered the blessing of Eli. He remembered that she received that blessing in faith and prayed that she would find grace. He remembered her distressed condition by her adversary, her childless state, her fear of God. God remembered all these things. Nothing is forgotten with the Lord. And notice she names the child because of this reason, because I have asked him of the Lord. Now the name Samuel literally means the name of God. Shem is name. El is God. Shemu is the name of God, God's name. Some believe it is a contraction of the full name. Saul or Shaul means asked. Mul is in the face of or before the presence of an El is God. Salmuel, Samuel. Some believe it's a contraction of that fuller name. But whatever it is that this is exactly done here, he was asked in prayer of God and God answered the prayer and therefore the name Samuel. And she says to her husband when he's planning to go up to worship, as we considered before, verse 21 reiterates, she says to her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned and then I will bring him. Now it's important to understand She's not asking to sin. Do you know who was supposed to go up three times in the year? All thy males shall appear before me. Now, she went before, didn't she? So she was a dutiful wife. She, uh, she could go. She could accompany her husband. But now she's saying, I have another duty. What was it? Well, it was to her child, wasn't it? Until he's weaned, until he's come to maturity, it is my duty to feed this child, to nourish him, to bring him up. God, in his great and wise design, has ordered nature in such a way that the superior, the mother, owes a duty to her inferior, the child, to feed that child, to sustain its life, and God has equipped the mother for this very thing. Mothers are to nurse their children until they are weaned. And she, as a pious matron, would not go without releasing the child. Remember the vow was, I will bring him here and lend him to the Lord forever. And that's it. So she has not completed her duty of nursing the child. She's not going to take him up and present him there and there's no one to nurse him. No. She's going to feed the boy. She's going to train the boy, and then she'll bring him, and she will not go empty-handed, as we'll see. Then will I bring him, verse 22, that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. I will pay my vows. Though I dearly love this child, I will pay my vows. And notice Elkanah's response. Do what seemeth thee good, tarry until thou have weaned him. Now, normally, when we read, do what seemeth thee good in the book of Judges, that's the theme of the book. Everybody did what was good in their own eyes. That's literally what it means. Do what seemeth good in thine eyes. That's what he's saying. But here, notice, it is an indifferent matter. Was she required to go to worship? No. So could she go to worship if she wanted to? Yes. This is different from the New Testament, by the way. God requires everyone to appear each week before him. But they had this liberty. And so she chose and did what was good in an indifferent matter. In matters indifferent then, 
Those in authority may allow those under their authority to use discretion, but never in moral matters. Not doing whatever is right in your own eyes when God says, don't do this, but do this. You can't say, well, I'll do what's right in my own eyes now. No. But in a matter like this, it's neither good nor bad. God hasn't commanded or forbidden anything. You may do as you please. And authorities have the right, they don't have a duty, but they have a right to say, I will concede this point to this person in this indifferent matter. Let us then know the will of God revealed in Scripture, know where we can make concessions and give discretion, and where we may not. We must know this. Everyone in authority must know what are the moral matters and what are the discretionary matters. Let us then walk wisely in these ways for God's glory. Notice verse 24, when she comes, she does not appear. She has three bullocks. She's not empty when she comes. Now, normally, they would have one bullock. She offers three. Notice what else she does. One ephah of flour and a bottle of wine. Now, this is all significant. If you read Numbers 15, verses 8 through 10, you will find this. One bowl, three-tenth deals. That's one-tenth of an ephah, or one-third, 30% actually, of an ephah. She's going three times more, plus a little extra, to what the law required of those that vowed. She brings an entire bottle of wine. So she is giving a threefold offering from the baseline set by the law. She has, in other words, a thankful spirit. She's not stingy in her worship toward God. She is generous, having been given grace. She loves much. And notice here, verse 26, she says, As thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord, this is most certainly the case. Verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Here is God's grace. Here is God's mercy. Here is God's goodness to his people, hearing their prayers, giving to her in this case. As she made this vow, if you do this, then I will do this. God has done what she asked, and now she will do what she has said. I have lent him to the Lord. Now we think of the word lent as perhaps like you loan somebody some money. That's not the case here. This word can mean to give or to lend, to grant or to make over to, to sign them to someone else. That's what she's saying. I have assigned him completely from my parental authority to God directly to be his authority through the priest Eli. I have lent him unto the Lord. Let us pay our vows to God. As she promised, so she did. And when she fulfills her vow, she's an example for each and every one of us. But notice verse 28, it shifts gears on us because it's going to contrast the child Samuel with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And notice what it says. It does not say that she worshiped the Lord there. Who is it? He worshiped the Lord. Who is that? Who is the he? It's the he that I have lent to the Lord. It is Samuel himself, the lad now weaned, presented before God. He is worshiping the Lord. Even at his young age, we'll see, she makes him little coats. 
because every year he's growing bigger and bigger. She makes a coat and brings it each year to him. He's a little child there worshiping the Lord. Little children, can you worship God? Yes, you can. Just like Samuel, you can worship God too. You can come into his presence. You can offer up prayers. He even worshiped in very special ways. And this, parents, is what we must do for our children, both by precept and commandment, by example, and by the government of our households, as Samuel's parents did. And thus far, the exposition of 1 Samuel chapter 1.